Hi there, I'm AR. Welcome back to the Lore Research Lab. And if you're new here, welcome to the Lore Research Lab, where I ramble about Nintendo video games. So I, folks, I just need to take a second to acknowledge something. If you are new here, or if you aren't new here, I am just so happy that this episode is, no, it's, no, it's not, it's not about Legend of Zelda. No, no, it's not about Mario. No, although I should really do some more episodes on Mario. And it's definitely not about Pokemon something different for once. I am extremely hyped. This is the 61st log and the ninth introduction looking at Fire Emblem, today's thesis. What is there to know about this franchise and its games? It's time to deep dive, folks. All right, folks, as you can probably tell, I am ecstatic to talk about something that is just, it's just new. It's Fire Emblem, folks. Um, we, we made it. I'm, I'm just, I, I, yeah, I'm, I'm just very excited. Um, this is going to be an interesting franchise to discuss, um, because it's not like a, Nintendo doesn't like, they only publish these games. So the developers of uh, the Fire Emblem games, they, that's intelligent systems. And we're going to just hear about intelligent systems a little bit more in a bit, uh, a little bit more in a bit, so many bits. Um, and, uh, Fire Emblem is a franchise. The interesting thing about this this series as well is that it's not like it, it it wasn't lightning in a bottle. It didn't like strike gold and gain traction as a franchise until quite late in its uh, run. Um, so I, I, I find it very interesting for these reasons because it's like it's one of many uh, game series that Nintendo only publishes but not develops. Like like they participate in releasing the game, but not necessarily like, what's the word? Uh, developing the game and all the games and all that. Um, so I'm gonna get into a bottled history of the franchise to start us out. So just a very brief kind of summary, and this is all stuff I'm gonna be touching on later in more detail. What is Fire Emblem about? So Fire Emblem, uh, it consists of, uh, um, it's what's well, set in uh, time periods and settings that utilize uh, medieval aesthetics or Renaissance aesthetics and social structures. Um, and uh, so I guess you could say feudalistic societies and things like that in certain ways. Um, and it has a fantasy, uh, it's, it's part of the fantasy genre and is a tactical, they are tactical role-playing games. Um, so that's that's kind of where we're starting off with, with Fire Emblem. Um, so for, I'll now get into kind of like a bottled history of the kind of development, background stuff, information. That's what I'm going to talk about now. So I'll be starting off by talking about Intelligent Systems, the developer of these games. And, you know, it, it, Intelligent Systems is really interesting because it's like, they've actually been around for quite a while, but I think their, their role in contributing to the gaming scene or maybe more specifically the Nintendo gaming scene has been rather understated because they were founded in 1984 and then later established in North America in 1985. So it, it, they've been around, they've been around the block. Uh, one programmer named Toru Narihiro was hired by Nintendo to port um, uh, an early console known as the Famicom, uh, Famicom a disk system or its uh, software to the standard ROM cartridge uh, format that was being used outside of Japan um, on the Nintendo Entertainment System, better known as the NES. Uh, um, you know, the universality of consoles, like now, um, there isn't a lot of what's known as region locking. Uh, I don't think it happens quite as much, but um, back in the day, uh, consoles, it's like you can only play games that are released in uh, this country 
if you bought the console for in that same country. You can't have a Japanese console and then play with like a North American cartridge kind of thing. Um, so I'm pretty sure that that's what's being dealt with here. And essentially, um, what like kind of what happened next for Narihiro, um, who I was, like I'm pretty sure he was a part of this group. Uh, Nintendo basically formed this auxiliary program unit that specifically had people port, fix, and program uh, Nintendo-developed software. Um, these individuals would have minor contributions to larger games developed by other divisions of Nintendo, such as the Research and Development Division or their Entertainment Division. I forget I forget all the division names, but Nintendo's got a bunch of those. Um, so in any case, these, the, these were the kind of early beginnings of intelligent systems. So uh, Narihiro programmed the first ever Fire Emblem game in 1990 with help from Nintendo's research and development team. His success led to the auxiliary team evolving into a more proper game development group, extending their staff to graphic designers and musicians. Uh, throughout the team's lifespan thus far, they have contributed to the development of games as, uh, as early as Mario Bros in 1983 and have since developed uh, or contributed to other notable games like Super Metroid on the Super Nintendo Entertainment System or the SNES and then Paper Mario on the Nintendo 64, which was a big hit at the time. Um, so the thing is, is that, and it's not necessarily all the same people, just keep that in mind. It's not necessarily all the same people, but intelligent systems as an entity, they had roles, they, had, they made these contributions. But that being said though, Fire Emblem is probably the only franchise prominently developed by intelligent systems. So let's talk about a bottled history of Fire Emblem games now. There's going to be a ton of name dropping, lots of game titles to go over because I'm going to give you the full rundown. I consider myself to be a new fan to Fire uh, Fire Emblem, so the older games uh, for I'm just gonna I'm, I'm mostly just giving basic descriptions that you yourself can read online. But that being said, if you're here, I, I've 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 what it was, what's the word compiled the information in such a way that you don't have to open 50 tabs like I did. So starting off, we got Fire Emblem Shadow Dragon and the Blade of Light. This was first released exclusively in Japan in 1990 on the Famicom con, Famicom console. I do I struggle to say that console name so much. Um. Also, just uh, keep in mind for the early Fire Emblem releases, they were just in Japan. Um, so uh, the Famicom console had been around since like the early 1980s. So Fire Emblem at this point only has one game on its roster. And this was released well after other prominent Nintendo, Nintendo games. So you could just say that it was like, this is, I, I don't want to put it too plainly and be just like, oh yeah, this is something they're like trying out. Uh, that kind of thing. It, it's 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 more just that like any other video game being published, they're they're just taking a shot with this. Famicom cartridges were like kind of huge and unwieldy, and the device itself is very different from the sleek look of consoles nowadays. But I'm not here to rag on the Famicom though. Um, the reason I just want to emphasize the role of the Famicom console is because this is the console most of the early Fire Emblem games would be played on. Um, until they started shifting things around. Uh, so anyways, there's that. Now, because I'm mentioning all these consoles, maybe you've never heard of these consoles before, there's actually not a whole lot of explaining to do when it comes to control, so I'm not gonna go over that at all because it will become evident later when I discuss gameplay and stuff like that. That, um, uh, well, it's actually quite a straightforward game in a lot of ways. It's the kind of game that challenges your brain more 
than like having you to multitask and press a lot of different buttons. You don't have to worry about controlling the game. You actually need to be strategic because it's a tactical role-playing game. So it's more of a challenge on your mind rather than the actual controlling of the game itself. So yes, controls, you don't really have to worry about that. In 1992, Fire Emblem Gaiden was released on the Famicom, featuring dungeon exploration as a new and what was considered unusual mechanic, and I don't think this is a mechanic that's featured in any other Fire Emblem game except Gaiden and one other game. In 1994, Mystery of the Emblem was released on the Super Famicom, which had improved graphics compared to the uh, NES and other Famicom, like, and just Famicom systems. Um, the first part of the game, uh, like of uh, Mystery of the Emblem, essentially remade Shadow Dragon and the Blade of Light, while the second part of the game presents an original story that functions like a sequel to the to the events of the remade game. It's, so it's, it's kind of like a two-in-one, right? Also on the Super Famicom in 1996 and 1999 respectively was the Genealogy of the Holy Boar and then Thracia 776. Uh, they were released also on the Super Famicom. Entering the 2000s saw Fire Emblem games like many other franchises shift between consoles, starting with The Binding Blade in 2002 on the Game Boy Advance. Its prequel, The Blazing Blade, was released on the same console in the following year, so in 2003. But this was actually a major turning point in the franchise, as this was the first overseas title in North America um, uh, in 2003, I think, and then in 2004 in Europe, although it might be 2004 for both years. Um, anyways, Fire Emblem was basically expanding its market at this point, and with that came the Sacred Stones uh, fire, uh, in uh, 2004 in Japan and then 2005 in North America and Europe. Path of Radiance was released on the GameCube in 2005, becoming the first Fire Emblem game to feature 3D graphics, voice acting, and full motion animated cutscenes. Uh, this was a big deal, and all of these features would become staples for the franchise going forward, so this was pretty big. Also, the GameCube is a return to um, uh, the TV consoles as opposed to handheld consoles, because the Game Boy Advance uh, was, a was a, a handheld console, words. Anyways, its sequel, Radiant Dawn, was released for the Wii in 2008 in Japan and 2008 in North America and Europe. Then in, in 2008, in Japan, and then on, in 2009, in North America and Europe, Fire Emblem returned to handheld systems and released Fire Emblem Shadow Dragon on the Nintendo DS, adding in new gameplay features that took advantage of the DS hardware as an expanded remake of Shadow Dragon and the Blade of Light. So this is its second remake. In 2010, an exclusively Japanese release known as New Mystery of the Emblem. Uh, this was a, it, it remade, um, you might have guessed it by this point. It remade Mystery of the Emblem, being another expanded remake. Um, up until this point, things were slow for the Fire Emblem franchise. One could even say it maybe stagnated a little bit. It's hard to say, really. But whatever the case, the Fire Emblem franchise was not was not really holding. Uh, there's a phrase for this. Something, something, words. It was kind of hanging by a thread. I don't know if that's too dramatic, but there was a, there was a struggle for the franchise this brings us to 2012 and 2013 you know japanese release north american european release which saw the release of fire emblem awakening on the nintendo 3ds this game is credited with saving and revitalizing the franchise being a major hit overseas and a commercial success and it's it, it, it was just huge for that. It was it was a big deal um to be credited as saving a franchise from just dying out 
Um, it feels kind of crazy because we have gotten more Fire Emblem games since Awakening, and I think they've all been popular in their own ways. So it's like Fire Emblem, I think, from this point onwards, was getting closer to becoming a bit more of like a household name. Not to be too dramatic either. And uh, but you know, moving on, Awakening, big deal, folks. In 2015 and 2016 came uh, Fates which was released on the same console. Two physical versions were released. Uh, they might've had digital versions released as well at the same time, but I think there was a physical version. Anyway, the two physical versions were released as part of Fates. There's Fates Birthright, and then there was Fates Conquest, uh, which each possessed unique characters, settings, and independent storylines. Um, originally downloadable content or DLC was this other third path known as Revelations. Um, and because that's downloadable content, it would have been purchased electronically at the time. Basically, the way that this, these the, like fates works is that depending on which version you get, you have a choice to fight for a certain side. Because this is the setting of fates is there's kind of this one clan, if you will, or one family, and then there's another clan or family, and they kind of have their own dominions or their own kind of areas to govern, but they're fighting over the same land, essentially. For Birthright, you will side with one of those families, and then with Conquest, you will side with another one of those families. In Revelations, you remain neutral. Um, uh, the game, like, Fates was later re-released with all three paths available in a single, like, single game, as opposed to you having to get, like, DLC and all, like, the other two games. So, they, I, I don't know why they just didn't do that right off the bat, but, well, I kind of know why, but still. Um, that's, uh, that's, so that's, that's, that's that. Fates was, was a wild time for that, to be honest. And then, folks, you're about to hear about my favorite Fire Emblem game now. Fire Emblem Echoes Shadows of Valentia was released in 2017 um, on the 3DS as an enhanced remake of Gaiden. Now, Gaiden was an exclusive Japanese release in 1992, so this was really cool because this was available for everyone. Much like, uh... Awakening and Fates before it, the, you know, graphics had a different look to them, so it's greatly improved since 90, 1992, obviously. There was enhanced story elements and characters, and uh, it was just, it's just a very smooth game. Like, it's just, it's, it's not an easy game, but it's very playable, and the replayability of the game as well is always so much fun, because there's always, and this is the case with all Fire Emblem games, to be completely honest, you can always do things differently a second time around. Like, you're actually not really going to find that you're going to want to do things exactly the same way you did things the first time, because I know every time that I've replayed Echoes, I've always done something a little bit different. Um, and uh, personally, just using the example of Echoes, because I've also done the same with uh, Fates and Awakening. But it's, it's, it's just such a fun game for that. And this is the second game that also features dungeon exploration. Uh, as a game mechanic, which is unique to Gaiden and now Echoes. And then this brings us, folks, to the most recent Fire Emblem installment, Fire Emblem Three Houses, which was released on the Nintendo Switch in 2019. Do I need to say anything about the Nintendo Switch? I don't know. I don't, I don't think so. I think it's pretty pretty self-explanatory by this point. This game features cutscenes, more uh, like kind of explorative features, um, not necessarily in terms of like adventuring. It's not like there's a version of uh, dungeon mechanics, but because of uh, the situation, like the scenario of the game, which is that you're basically a teacher at a monastery. Um, uh, and because of that, it's kind of like your hub area. So that's where you have access to all different things. You can talk to all kinds of people and whatnot. And similar to Fates, it gives players the options to choose between three different paths uh, where you'll 
approach different angles of the same story. You're going to just learn different details. So if you choose one path, you're going to learn things a certain way. If you choose another path, maybe there's more lore in that path. Maybe there's more conflict in this one, or maybe the speed at which things happen are faster compared to the other two paths, that kind of a thing. So you're confronting the stakes that unite all three of those paths. You're confronting them in different ways. So it's a very refreshing take, and I think it does it a bit more efficiently. Uh, not necessarily than Fates, because Fates still is like, they treat Conquest and Birthright like distinct games. With Three Houses, they kind of, it's the same scenario, like I said, but there's three different perspectives on it. So it, it, it's it's a different approach, but also a little bit similar. I think you get the point. Really cool, really inventive. There are a couple of uh, Fire Emblem spin-off games and things like that, but I'm not really here to talk about that. And Interestingly, there have been some like Fire Emblem games that were canceled due to like development conflicts or things like that. Like there's like a lack of schedule or something. Like there was supposed to be another game on the Wii after Radiant Dawn, but because of this like weak development schedule, they just canceled it. Um, and for the Nintendo 64, they were gonna have a game released called Fire Emblem 64 or something like that. But then the development for that game was just eventually shifted to uh, the Binding Blade instead. All right, so the next topic I want to cover includes personnel. So this is just gonna cover a bunch of different people who have participated in the creation of this game in varying capacities. So writers, directors, composers, and things like that. This is just really cool trivia. You don't really have to listen to this section, um, but uh, it's it's cool. And I, I personally like learning about these kinds of things. So I'm just gonna spend some time talking about uh, various people uh, that have been involved in the franchise. Um, now, of course, because there's a lot of names to go over anyway, and because the Fire Emblem games themselves have not necessarily had a consistent team per se, um, not that all video games out there have the same, like, you know, 30 people working on a game, or 30 people headlining the development of a game, it's not quite like that, but uh, there's just some key people I wanted to at least point out because I'm not going to be able to point out everyone. So one notable director and designer was Shozo Kaka, who directed Gaiden and the Genealogy of the Holy War. Uh, he's important to mention because of his critical role in those early games and coming up with storylines and things like that. So he, like, he had a pretty integral role to developing those early games. He's, he essentially created the template for future Fire Emblem games. So again, that's important, but some, I guess, other trivia about this guy is that he left Intelligent Systems in 1999 and was later sued by Nintendo on the grounds of copyright infringement for developing Tear Ring Saga, which in many ways, like in more ways than one, appeared to copy Fire Emblem. And of course, he's not with Intelligent anymore, so it's like, well, that's a problem. Um, anyways, I still think it's worth mentioning him because of his, his uh, creative role and impact in the early games. Moving on, um, there are some other key, uh, other key people I would like to note. Um, so the development team uh, behind the, behind succeeding games, like, like after, I guess you could say Shozo Kaga's games, uh, the team shifted around a lot. Like you didn't necessarily have the same directors or producers or writers. Like there was a lot of mixing up going on, but people like Toru Narihiro were still active. And then there was Kentaro Nishimura who directed The Blazing Blade and The Sacred Stones. And then composers like uh, Yuka Sujiyoko and Saki Haruyama were reoccurring in their contributions. So you did have some names that were starting to kind of stick around. 
Masayuki Horikawa was both a writer and director, having directed Path of Radiance. I do forget which game he wrote for, though. The more recent games, starting with Awakening, saw different creative personnel emerge, and uh, yeah, this is where things become really fun. I, I love the score of the new Fire Emblem games. It, they're just so good. Anyways, uh, Kohei Maeda and Genki Yokota directed Awakening and Fates, and then Genki Yokota would also go on to direct Three Houses with Toshiyuki Kusakihara. Kusakihara was also an artist for Awakening and Fates, alongside Yusuke Kozaki. I mentioned them not necessarily because earlier artists were less important or anything like that, but for the newer generation, the artwork of the Awakening characters, they had a certain look to them, and I think they were very popularized. Like, I think they were the kind of uh, it was the kind of art style that people are drawn to because art is so subjective, folks. So it's like when you kind of find something that resonates, you, you just kind of stick with that style a little bit. Um, uh, and the thing is, is that to be fair, Echoes had a different team of artists and off, uh, Three Houses opted for a completely different art style. But the overall image of Fire Emblem characters, it, it has a bit more of a consistent feel to it. Three Houses is, is a much stronger outlier compared to Echoes. Like Echoes is still kind of within the same vein of artwork as Awakening and Fates. Um, and as we're already starting to see, there are a lot of overlapping roles. So if, we're if there's some kind of consistency developing uh, in more ways than one, you're also seeing that there's a lot of overlap. Like you've one person doing multiple different things. Uh, so now I'm gonna go over prominent composers from the newer games. Uh, so there's Hiroki Morishita and Rei Kondo, who composed the score for Awakening and Fates. Uh, Takeru uh, Kanazaki, Yasuhisa Baba, uh, they composed for Fates and Echoes. And then Kanazaki again, uh, Morishita and Kondo joined forces to compose for Three Houses. A lot of overlap here as well, as you can see. Um, and that also shows that sound, I think, is becoming more consistent. Awakening, Fates, and Three Houses and Echoes, all, all these new games have fantastic scores. Like I said before, I absolutely adore the scores of these games. They're just so good. They're all epic. The emotive pieces will tug at your heartstrings kind of thing. The really momentous, like epic scenes um, and the music that goes with those scenes, it, you're, you're feeling the vibe. You're like, oh my goodness, this is intense and I am here for it. Or this is really stressful because the music is stressful. Trust me, there are there are some like Fire Emblem like themes out there that it's like, yeah, I think I'm stressed now. Maybe I wasn't before, but I think I am now. <laughs> Good times. Um, but yes, every kind of major like segment in these video games is just is so, you're, you're, it's immersive. It, you're, you're having an experience and it's fun. I really need to have more music themed episodes, honestly. Like I just kind of had this like epiphany while I was like thinking about all these things and just saying it out loud as well. It's just, it's if putting putting this into words, I need to have more music themed episodes. If season three ends up evolving into being purely about music, I am sorry, but nothing can stop me in my appreciation for music. I am, I am unstoppable in that regard. Uh, but that's not the point here because I'm still just here to talk about Fire Emblem. So I think that about covers the franchise's bottled history, about the games, and then all these different people that are involved in the creation of these games. Um, so I think it's been a fun time. Let me now discuss the general story format of Fire Emblem games and the varying settings seen across the franchise. Thank you.
All right, so story format, setting, let's get into this stuff. So let's start off with setting first. So like I briefly touched on earlier, Fire Emblem games, which are set in a medieval or Renaissance-like time period, have the player control a member royalty or a mercenary of some kind. They're not really an average Joe. Like sometimes they pass off as one, but you later find out that they're not an average Joe, so I can't call them that. Um, you know, they may or may not be royalty secretly, who knows, I don't know. They don't even know either. Anyways, um, as this character, the player is situated within a brewing conflict stirring in whatever landmass the story takes place in, which can range from dealing with two clashing continents or infighting and conflict from within. So it's like there's a gigantic continent. There's certain provinces constituting that continent, and some of them are allied with the others. Um, or maybe there is peace, but there is evil brewing elsewhere in a separate province, like that kind of a thing. Um, so I'm going to talk about just briefly list, uh, the continents that can be found uh, in, uh, across these games. So Arcanea and Valentia are the settings of Shadow Dragon and the Blade of Light, uh, Gaiden, Mystery of the Emblem, Awakening, and then Gaiden's remake, Echoes, of course. Genealogy of the Holy War and Thracia 776 are set in Jugdral. Um, which is distantly connected with Arcana and Valentia, while the Binding Blade and the Blazing Blade take place in Elib. Saying the Binding Blade and the Blazing Blade in the same breath was extremely difficult, and I just did that twice, so I'm impressed with myself. The Sacred Stones, set in Magvel, Path of Radiance and Radiant Dawn, are set uh, um, on the continent of Tellius. Fate's land is not named, um, and instead features two warring kind of groups trying to take control of the land. So the groups include the Norians and the Hoshidans. So there's there's the kind of uh, the Dominion of Nor, I suppose. Like that's not the title it's given in the game. It's just called Nor. But there's that there's the Dominion of Nor and then there's the Dominion of Hoshido and they're kind of just fighting over the same land, but they, they are fixed and seated in certain locations. Things are cold in Nor, and I forget, or is it cold in Hoshido? I don't know. Anyways, Three Houses uh, takes place in uh, the in a land known as Fodlan. Um, and as you can tell from these descriptions, there are just so many different geographies you're you're dealing with when it comes to these games. Uh, so they all they've all got really fun names to pronounce. I actually really like that about Fire Emblem. I don't know why. Like the names that they give these places are just so much fun. Arcanea, I'm like that's such a cool name for a continent. And Valentia, I'm like I I this is cool. This is cool. I support this. You know. Now as for the story format, it's quite straightforward. You play as this avatar or existing character um, and travel throughout the land, uh, whatever land of the game that you're playing in. And it there's a, like, as you play through it, uh, there's revealed all kinds of political intrigue and it also gives uh, players the chance to recruit others as more progress is made. When I say recruit, the thing is that some characters are integral to the story and will join your party anyways, because it's a single player game, but there's multiple players you can control. Only one player is actually playable. That's your central protagonist character typically, but there's a ton of people you're gonna be able to control within the game. Things I'll touch on in the gameplay section, of course. Um, but as you go through, um, there are certain characters where you have the option of ha uh, having them in your party, hence recruiting them. And usually, like, for the most part, 
you're gonna want to recruit them because there's certain characters that's like if you do it's like they're really strong or they're really powerful to begin with you're gonna want them on your team you know um in newer games it was common to see scenes uh showing the villain characters um and the like schemes and ideas they were cooking up and then that would usually foreshadow uh uh, like a battle like in the slight near future within the game's pacing. So it's like if you saw a cutscene in, let's say, chapter one, like the beginning of chapter one, then probably by the middle of chapter one, you're going to actually go through the battle that's instigated by the villainous entity that was perpetuating that event. Yeah, does that make sense? I'm asking if that makes sense, but you would have no way of answering. So it's a foolish question on my part. Um, but... Uh, yeah, I think you get the point. Um, and then uh, because you're going through the game and there's all kinds of details that you're learning about the land, the people that live in the land, the people that are a part of your own party as well. Like once you're kind of picking up on all these details, you get a better grasp of the actual story because there is always a beginning story and it's like, you're this character and you live in this land um, and you have to go on this journey or there's other things in store for you than just being some kid in a village like you gotta chase your dreams or something or because there's war you're probably gonna need a fight because of course all fire emblem games their central conflict is there's a war of some kind uh so you know like a number of lesser villainous entities are usually defeated before the real villain is revealed or even if you know who the real villain is it's like well they don't show up for the longest time they usually show up towards the end and then that culminates in like this final battle and it's super momentous and epic and everything. Usually really difficult to be completely honest. If everything goes according to plan, then you have your happy ending. Um, so let's talk characters now, which will cover the kinds of people that you can play as or meet in Fire Emblem games. But keep in mind that gameplay is still gonna be separate uh, from this. So gameplay is gonna come a lot later. But anyways, let's get into characters now.